Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. And Scarecrow's in that. He's, he's a little freaky, but I would not call that a horror film by any stretch. When I say horror film, I'm talking something really terrifying like The Ring. The Ring is not the scary. Ultimate, I knew you were going to say The ultimate that. in terms of horror films. <laughs> when you're young and impressionable, it is. <laughs> and when I say young, I mean like 19 years old. <laughs> <laughs> Almost the age of Harry Dresden at the start of the series. Yeah. Really, gentlemen. <laughs> I would not do well as a wizard in Chicago. <laughs> What's up, Phobophages? This is Steven. Phantology's back with another Dresden Files episode. We have Proven Guilty, book eight, from Jim Butcher this time. And Ben and Josh are on the line with me. How's it going? Hey, Steven. Steven, it's nice to see you. Thanks, man. Nice to get you back. We missed you in the previous episode on Deadbeat. But now we have the whole Dresden crew back, and we're ready to roll here with book eight. I'm sad I missed Deadbeat. I had literally been looking forward to recording that episode since we started Dresden, and I missed it. Yeah, a bit of a bummer because I'm going to actually say, and we'll see what you guys think, I feel like Proven Guilty was a bit of an unfortunate step back in the series compared to the heights that Deadbeat got to. Uh, I know, Ben, you just read it. What do you think? Is that align with your thoughts at all? I mean, I feel like we're kind of starting with the lead here, Stephen. I don't, I don't know if you really want me to start start with these strong hot takes right now. Well, let's no spoilers yet, no spoilers yet. But we can do like you know a bit, a little of an overview of what we thought of the book. Yeah, I I think it was also a step back, but it sucks because it had the potential at the start of the book. I was like ready for it to be really, really good, and then by the end of it, it was just like petering out on its last leg. I think, well, by the end, at least he's setting up the larger conflict. So by the end of this book, you get the first real sense of all of the books tying together. They actually put a name to some things and they and they tie specific events together. So that's good. But the plot itself is maybe on the weaker side for a Dresden book. Yeah, and that's that's my problem with serializations of anything. It's like you you go through a lot of fluff just to get like five minutes of plot at the very end of like the overarching plot. That happened to feel like a lot, I don't know, in like mid-2000s TV with like Lost or whatever. Like you, you watch like a bunch of stuff just to get to like the five minutes of good stuff at the very end. And I'm just not a fan of that, you know? Yeah, I think I know what you mean is when you say TV shows like there, there's this one-off plot and it has no significance to anything. And then at the very end of the episode, you get... Some kind of a lot of times they do this with uh, maybe not dramas like Lost, but lighter hearted shows where there's some kind of big romance that stretches throughout the series at the very end. Or maybe like once every like five episodes, you get like a significant glance or something like that. And you're like, oh, my gosh, this is so significant. But, but you're waiting. No, you're, this other of, stuff. you're just thinking of Jim and Pam. No, Steven's thinking about Chuck. Yeah, oh. I was thinking about oh. Chuck. Oh. Yeah, oh. Correctly identified. Yeah. Dang, Ben. <laughs> yes. OK, I was point for Ben. That was exactly describing Jim and Pam. Come on. like No way. That was describing Chuck. Everybody knew Jim and Pam were going to be a thing. Okay. Well, with any lighthearted TV show, you assume that the romance is going to work out. I, I agree. I think with Dresden, I enjoy the serialization of it. And 
I kind of enjoy getting back in the familiar trope of things of him, like starting out in Chicago and going and investigating whatever he's going to be investigating. And so I didn't find that to be as much of an issue, but that might just be because I enjoy it. And I will kind of push back a little bit, Ben, as well, because I think a lot of what's happening throughout this story is significant and we're not doing spoilers yet. So we can talk through this more, but there are some significant things in this book that are going to set up future books. So it's not like the entirety of the plot was just throw away. Yeah, that's true. I agree with that. I don't want, it's hard to talk about around spoilers right now. So, yeah. So before we go into spoilers, let me put in a plug for our channel Phantology. If you like what we're doing, we have a website, www.phantologybooks.com. All of our content is up there. Check us out on social media at Phantology Books. If you want to chat with us and tell us your opinions, make your voice heard, you can join our Discord and check us out on Patreon where we have some exclusives up there. So we are a growing channel, almost to 50 episodes actually in a pretty short amount of time. So we're still excited about doing this. And we're... Close to breaking 100 people on our Discord as well. So that's that's an exciting milestone. It's, we've had some lively discussions on there recently. Nice. Sounds like I just need to create a few more fake accounts and join them up, right? <laughs> Skooma. <laughs> that's, a, that's a Discord deep cut. <laughs> if you want to know what that means, join our Discord. But let's talk Dresden. Let's talk some plot details. Uh, I guess first content warning for Dresden Files. If you listen to previous episodes, you know that Dresden is a pretty solid TV 14 type show, PG 13 type book. There is, there's some swearing, there's some violence, there's some sexual content, uh, none of it too on camera. So it's kind of what you'd expect in an urban fantasy. Yeah. I would say this one major trigger warning for like underage weirdness. If you, if you were, a victim of sexual assault by uh, by somebody that you looked up to or a mentor, then you might not want to read this book. And I mean, that might be a, a little harsh because there's not any sexual assault that happens. Let's clear that up. No, there's not. But there's definitely inappropriate actions and relations that that happen. Well, not even that. There are hints at like interests and possibilities, but. There's nothing I, I like, don't too know. explicit I, I, that happens. When you when you disrobe in front of somebody, that, that crosses a line from from hints to an action. Why don't we just talk about this in spoilers? So getting into some spoilers, let's talk plot here. So we pick up from the action of Deadbeat. I don't remember exactly how much longer this is after Deadbeat, but the first thing that happens as the plot gets started here is we start in the midst of this gathering of the White Council in Chicago, where there is a 16-year-old kid that's been practicing black magic and breaking the laws of magic that the Wizarding Council holds very strictly. And so they, they convene and they condemn him to death. And this kid is beheaded. And Harry's a part of this now because he's a warden. And he has some very mixed feelings here because... While he understands that the laws of the White Council are important, at the same time, it's like there's this kid. Could we not have saved him and done something to redeem him a little bit? And obviously coming from his past as well, where he was once this kid, like this is a big issue for Harry and it's going to become a pretty important piece of the plot. So I guess before we go too far, like what do you guys think of the way that the White Council handles their laws of magic? I 
don't necessarily think it's the greatest thing to do. So this was actually, I know this is like, again, jumping ahead a little bit, but this was going to be my worst of the best was this trial because I feel like, I feel like it does make sense if you're, if you really want to actually have a wizarding council that like survives for millennia, you like need to strictly enforce whatever guidelines those you're going to have, you know? And if there's a 16 kid that's breaking those laws, then like you need to get out there and prevent him from doing that and prevent that from happening. So it sounds like you're saying the the Harry Potter way of enforcing uh, improper use of magic is not really realistic. First of all, Harry Potter makes no sense because none of that, like the whole trace thing really makes any sense. Well, here's the thing. When Harry blows up at Marge, he probably would have been hauled in front of uh, the White Council for some dark magic there. Yeah, or at least got his wand snapped and said he gets a pat on the back from Cornelius Fudge. Well, okay. I mean... So I think that a, a kid controlling people and like uh, going down a path of like actively harming people, it would be like Harry going and using the um, Imperius curse and like controlling people. And so, yeah, I think if he was doing that, then there would need to be pretty severe uh, retributions. Yeah. And those are, those are worthy of death in the wizarding world. Right. Yeah. So I think, yeah, if a kid like, uh, doesn't really know how to control his magic and has like a magical outburst, then that's not the same thing as like actively going and like trying to manipulate and control your loved ones. Cause that's like serial killer status and you can't have that going on. Yeah. I mean, Sirius Black blew up what a dozen people and he was put in Azkaban and they said, Oh, if we get him this next time, he's going to get the Dementors kiss. So it takes quite a bit to actually execute someone in Harry Potter Harry Dresden version of magic is obviously a bit more adult. So yeah, it makes sense that they might be chopping off some heads for, for black magic. I guess my point is we're in this active fight with the red court and we need every practitioner of magic we can on our side. So why aren't they spending more resources trying to like gather apprentices and locate these guys before they, you know, go into black magic at, it seems like maybe more resources should be put towards recruiting and finding these kids young. Yeah, and that's another, I think, uh, thing that you get from this council is that there's not a whole lot of looking towards the next generation. It seems like there's only a few people, maybe like Ebenezer and Harry and Harry's friend's name that has that was introduced last book, right? Ramirez, maybe? Yeah, yeah, Ramirez. Like, I, I feel like there's like a few wizards that are like, kind of forward looking but everyone else is trying to consolidate their own power and still like caught up in the politics of the council and not really caring about what's going on you know outside of their little bubble and when you mentioned forward looking wizards the the first one who comes to mind is the gatekeeper right we get into some of the temporal magic that he shows us not a whole lot of details in this book we'll see where that goes but he passes on a warning to Harry that there's some black magic going on in Chicago, more so than just this kid. Harry talks to Ebenezer a bit and kind of gets like the lowdown um, on the on the war that's going on right now, still not going well for the White Council. And Ebenezer, who Harry still doesn't really trust because of some of the fallouts in uh, a couple books ago, asks Harry to help get the Winter Court on their side in the war against the red court and harry kind of blows him off um ebenezer's making these overtures towards him but harry's still not receptive 
so there is this Fey plot that's that's built in right away, and we'll see how Harry deals with that. And then I guess at the beginning of this book, really, we just get like all of the pieces lined up because Lashiel appears, Harry dismisses her right away, and he kind of has this like inner conflict about uh, the fact that he hasn't seen Michael for a while and he doesn't trust himself around Michael. And then Murphy comes on the scene when Harry gets in this car accident. Harry tells Murphy about the black magic. And then Thomas kind of comes in and out. And Thomas has been preoccupied and busy lately. So this is all like lining up. And I thought this was maybe one of the less interesting openings to the book. Because usually Dresden Files books begin like with a bunch of action. And we kind of flow right in. But this one, I don't know, maybe a little bit more choppy. Yeah, I mean, the the action part of this is is watching somebody be beheaded at the trial. So like that's what that's the strong intro that you're looking for. But but after that, there's not much like rising action after that. You know what I mean? Yeah, and we're glad that we're going to, you know, see these characters obviously, but it just seems like maybe they should be more integrated and I I don't know. I mean, it's tough because time has passed and Harry's taking on a new case and that's kind of the Dresden Files brand so maybe it's okay for dresden files yeah but like even like thomas we're told that he has a new job but never quite told what it is and it's it's kind of like he's progressing these characters a little bit but doesn't want to give too much because it'll distract from the other plot that he's trying to build out so yeah i'm not i'm not sure thomas is the real one i can i can clearly say i have no idea what was going on with him he was present but not present for most of the book and so you hope that in future books, he will be more present, right? Yeah, right. I get that's the advantage that a serialization has is he can drop hints in one book and then expand on it and make it into a bigger plot point in a future book. Yeah. Compared to a massive fantasy, you know, 1200 page long Cosmere book where throughout the book, you have each individual piece going from point A to point Z. So you don't really get that in a four 500 page urban fantasy yeah yeah and i'll just compare this a little bit to i'm on book three halfway through book three of the iron Druid chronicles and i think that that series does a lot of things that i like but its weakest point i believe is its lack of really good secondary characters and i will give it a little bit of slack because i remember ben when you started going through dresden like um that was one critique you had through book one, but I feel like Justin does a pretty good job of pretty quickly building out relatable character, like secondary characters that still have really good voices and you can still relate to. And so I feel like um, even though we're what book, what book number is this? Like seven or eight proven guilty eight. eight. Yeah. So I feel like we're eight books in, but I feel like all these characters like Thomas and Murphy and Michael and Harry and, even smaller characters like Kincaid or villains like Marcone, Marcon, is it Marcon or Marcon? Marcon, yeah. Marcon, like Marcon. Or, yeah. So like you get all these characters and you, you get much more of a voice and you feel like you know who they are and you know their personality. And I feel like that's something Dresden does really well. And so when there is like a book that kind of misfires on that and you don't feel like you're getting a lot out of those characters, it can seem a little bit disappointing. But that's because he does those characters really well. Yeah, by this point, I mean, we are eight books in, but there is a cast, right, that we're pretty familiar with. So I think that, like you say, definite point in Dresden's favor. Yeah, and strong addition to this uh, this cast, I would say, in this book. We got Molly Carpenter, who we've been introduced to briefly in, in previous books, but she's going to make a strong 
entrance here. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like lately we've been getting, you know, additional pieces. I guess I feel like every book that we review, we say, oh, yeah, the cast is finalized. But then we realize, oh, actually, there's another one coming in. So, yeah, this is probably the Molly entrance book. Yeah. So going forward into the plot, Harry then does his routine of calling up all of his friends. We've seen this before in other books. He calls Fix the Summer Night that we saw back in Summer Night, the book. So summer night summer night and they agree to meet up for lunch at McAnally's because he's again trying to kind of make some overtures into the fey kingdom to help out the council and ebenezer and then he consults he does this typical consultation with bob he has this cool new project called little chicago he's got this like uh, scale model replica of chicago down his basement in his lab right that he can look over and use magic across. So this is kind of a cool idea. Uh, kind of reminds me a little bit of something you see in Oathbringer. I mean, that's not really a spoiler, but there is some magic that's used in Oathbringer that's similar. Uh, so that's, that's a cool idea. I like seeing magic being applied in new and interesting ways. Yeah, this was kind of weird for me, though, because apparently the spell is like super powerful and has the capability of killing Harry to the point that, like, this is like the hill that, oh, what's her name? Murphy. <laughs> no, no, the fallen angel, Lashiel. You know Murphy's name now, so yeah, I know Murphy's name. Lieutenant Karen, not Lieutenant Karen, Deputy Karen Murphy. But who knows? She might be defunded as well. Anyway, but yeah, apparently Lashiel is willing to like is like does not want Harry to perform the spell because it'll kill himself. But it didn't seem like that big of a spell. It's like you're gonna whiz around Little Chicago for a while. That was kind of weird to me. Is that how you say your name? Lachiel? Is that what they say in the audio? Yeah, it's like Lachiel. Yeah. Ah, I've been saying Lachiel. So or Lachiel. It, it might be, it might be, no, never mind. Go back to Lachiel. I don't know. I It's double speed, man. So it's just like a L and a sh is all I know. <laughs> all right. Yeah, we, we've discussed this in, in at length. But uh, okay, so I guess that could be a little confusing, just like what the ramifications of different magics are and how dangerous they are yeah that's probably not super well explained it's a it's a softer magic system for sure i think this is cool though it's like the dresden version of the marauders map kind of again from harry potter you know like you in harry potter you have a little map that has a little footprints and it's not really well like fleshed out but then you have you know, harry making a little chicago and it's like that on steroids yeah and so what he does with little chicago is he's about to perform this ritual he's able to track things better using little chicago is kind of the idea so now that i guess he's taking his he's taking his wardening very seriously he's got a tool in place to really crack down on crime throughout chicago and he is going to track blood and terror that are synonymous with the actual black magic because you can't track the black magic itself because that's too easy of course and right as he's about to do this Molly calls from jail, or so she says, but no, it's a lie because it's really her boyfriend, Nelson, who's in jail, and he got blamed for some kind of mysterious attack at a horror movie convention, which is called SplatterCon, which is an awesome name for a Three horror movie convention. Marks. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta have those. Does the narrator say those? No, no, he He always says that there's three exclamation marks at the end of oh. it, like when, whenever he sees a badge. Okay, gotcha. Definitely not something that I would ever attend because I am terrified of scary movies because I'm a wimp. But Nelson appears to be way into it. 
I think that this is cool. This is kind of like one of those chicks that I enjoyed. Kind of feel like how I hated this chick of being on like a porno set. I really like this of being like on a on a horror convention movie or horror convention Comic Con type thing. I I thought it was fun. Yeah, it does kind of seem like a shtick. Like it's just lifted from the previous book where they were on the the porn movie set. The thing that this really reminds me of is Psych. If anyone's seen Psych, where like they just kind of do these type of things where there's some sort of convention. Like they had like an American Idol episode where they were on the set of American Idol and then one in like a newsroom. And then I think one was at a convention like this. It's, it's fun for me. I, I enjoy that kind of stuff. That's the genre, right? That's kind of like the pulpy genre. That's one of the, the hallmarks of it, I guess. Well, also it gives you an interesting setting at the very least, right? Like it would be pretty boring if Harry was just walking around the streets of Chicago all day. Right. I mean, we got to have some interesting locations for our tour of Chicago, which we mention every time we do the Dresden episodes. So we're adding SplatterCon. Hopefully it's still a convention when the tour actually happens. The other thing is, do you think that Butcher was just sitting bored at like a panel at some <laughs> convention he was at? And he was like, oh, I'm just going to start writing the next Dresden. <laughs> Imagine if the monsters that we're all watching right now were to magically come alive. What would happen? Yeah. Yeah. Jim that's, Butcher. that's probably the level of imagination it takes. <laughs> so he helps out Nelson, the boyfriend. He takes Molly home where it turns out things are kind of bad with her mom, Charity. He's met the Carpenter fam before and he meets up with Michael. This time he's been nervous about saying Michael, but it seems to go okay. Like Michael doesn't notice anything. But then Michael says, oh, I'm off leaving for a mission. And you know, there's no way you get into a book and one of the coolest characters says, I'm leaving for a mission. Like, okay, this is going to be important, obviously. And it, later in the book, like it's a small plot point, but it's something that has like a small payoff. And I like anything having to do with the Knights of the Cross. Yeah, and one tidbit that we get is that the sword that Harry has is actually the sword of King Arthur, right? That like they had to pull from the rock. So yeah, that was a yeah, I think tidbit. it says that. Yeah. These are the types of things that I know and you can see on the fandom wikis. And so I'm glad that you bring them up, Ben, because as a first time reader, they get introduced, like you get more and more little details about that. So it sounds like this is the book where you learn it's King Arthur's sword. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's kind of in a cool way where, Harry's just like blown away by this, you know, and, and you're like, but you're not actually using it right now or paying it much attention. Like, it seems like you should be actively looking for somebody to, to take it off your hands for you. I don't know. Harry's it, juggling a lot of things. Yeah. And why would you, it would be hard to trust something like that to anyone, especially because Harry does have like a lot of trust issues that he's just going to go find somebody that he really trusts enough to give such a powerful weapon to. Yeah, I mean, do you post a LinkedIn posting looking <laughs> for someone true of heart who can wield a magical sword and I can trust forever? That's tough, man. There's got to be some type of wizarding Tinder, though, right? Where you where you swipe in to find people with specific abilities or something. So not the Tinder dating, but like Tinder right, magical no. match? Yep, exactly. Come on, that would be abused. The question is, what do you put on your profile? Do you put your... People are lying, like instead of lying about their height, people lie about their like magic ability. Yeah. And obviously it's going to be used for dark magic, you know, looking for accomplished necromancer, hit me up on the dark no, web. That, that That's on Craigslist. <laughs> that's on the Craigslist version. <laughs> yeah. The hardly maintained at all terrible user <laughs> interface version. 
<laughs> they need to have a wizarding like never mind okay we're gonna yeah we've done we've killed it we've killed it at this point so they go to splattercon for the first time with molly and they get in harry uses his sight he sees the black magic this is indeed the place and then the lights go out and the reaper appears and this is the point where i steven get the heck out of splattercon but harry goes after the reaper uh, i think rawlings the police officer with him tries to shoot it gun doesn't work harry dispatches it without too much trouble if i remember right and it leaves behind a bunch of ectoplasm and then murphy kind of helps harry get out of a tight spot with cops who are like there's a dead person here and you're here with the staff and obviously done something so i was a little confused at this point actually like he was able to take the reaper out pretty easily or am i remembering this wrong ben well, he didn't take it out. I think he just made it leave. He never assumed that he had like defeated the threat that it posed. Or okay. Like okay. Right. So he knew it was kind of like a momentary um, victory. Also, it's very funny because I feel like Dresden, whenever they want to highlight the invincibility of something, they shoot at it and it like does nothing. It could be vampires. It could be werewolves. It could be anything. But like you shoot at it and you know nothing's going to happen to it. Have guns ever worked? Is the question? Yeah, I doubt it. They they work to te- temporarily hurt um, vampires in this book, but they they regrow and just spout the bullets out like they're nothing. I always think that's fun. That's always like a satisfying moment to me to see like a cop be so confident and like fire his gun and then nothing happens. It just always seems like it's a payoff for me. I don't know why. Seems like there's a social commentary we could make here in light of recent events. We're not going to do it because that is not our channel, but there's an overture towards it, at least. One second, though. The only guns that do work are fired by Concade. If he fires a weapon, then you know that it's going to do some damage. Kincaid. Kincaid. I got the name right, man. Okay, why are you you messing with me here? We're slowly improving your pronunciation. (laughs) Yeah, but there's a reason for Kincaid as well which uh, we haven't really gone too much into, just hints thus far in this series. So Harry and Murphy kind of have this nice conversation about the weight of the people Harry's killed, Harry's concern that he could go bad and become a dark wizard as well. And I think one thing this book really advances is Harry and Murphy's relationship. They have some nice conversations. And at this point, it's really more than just like, you know, there's this attraction between them, which they address later. But they're also really kind of tightly bound together by friendship and mutual trust. It's a good relationship. Yeah, I agree. They definitely have like a DTR in this book where Harry's like, I really want to date you. And Murphy's like, I want to date you too, but it would just never work out. And then Harry's like, why wouldn't it work out? And she's like, well, you're going to like not grow old with me and not want kids and like just list all these practical reasons. So I thought that was pretty realistic. And yeah, I enjoyed that part. But it does beg the question, like, why wouldn't Harry be the one to think that he was going to be like growing old and leaving her behind or her leaving him behind? Not weird. Harry's not super responsible. (laughs) Yeah, Harry's kind of selfish when it comes to love, too. You know, he thinks about himself and that's not something he would have thought about. Like, oh, I'm going to keep living my life. And here's a here's a partner that's a great partner in another part of life. Why wouldn't you make a partner in this part of life as well? Yeah, that's true. And he's still like a relatively young guy. I mean, we get the sense that he's seen some things at this point, but I think he starts the series in probably his younger 20s. And 
I'm going to guess he's more like you're, mid to late 20s now. 20s? I was envisioning him like late 30s at the start of the series. No, no way. No way. What? Yeah. No. Okay. This is interesting. How do He's like maybe 25, 26 is what I was thinking. What? At the start. No way. I I was thinking way older. He's at the beginning of the series, he has his like own PI business. He's like established. His own PI business. He's got an ad in the yellow page under Wizard and he lives in a basement. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? This could be because I watched the TV show before reading this, and it's definitely like a middle-aged man that they have acting as Harry. So this is, I guess, minor spoilers, but at at the start of Cold Days, Harry is 37. Okay. And Cold Days is book 13, I want to say. Maybe book yeah. 14. This is according to the fandom. So this is something we will probably have to post on our correction. Yeah, we'll put that on the Patreon correction. But uh, yeah, we, we could probably reverse engineer how old he is. Okay, wait, using I got some it. Harry Potter dating techniques. I, I got a timeline. I got a timeline. Hopefully. Okay, Josh is going to let us know how old Harry is. He's actively researching it right now using his version of Bob the Skull. But in the meantime, we go on, and Harry goes with Murphy to the hospital. They deduce that. Well, Harry deduces that the thing that is causing the problem is a phobophage, which is what I welcomed at the beginning of the podcast, which is probably not a great move on my part, but it's a spirit that feeds on fear. So that's what we have to contend with. And we'll see how serious that is. We go back to Harry's apartment where Thomas is moving out. So, okay, he's got a steady thing going. That's all we know for now. And then Harry goes off to lunch with Fitz and Lily, the summer night and lady. And they are under a compulsion not to help him because uh, Tatiana the summer queen doesn't like Harry, but he is able to kind of like worm their way around using some Aes Sedai tricks. And he figures out that summer isn't getting involved because they can't risk doing that because that would expose them to winter because of the current power balance. And winter is ask, is acting very weird for some reason. And so in order to investigate this weirdness, he summons Maeve, the winter lady, and she owes him because of an attack that's happened at Billy and George's wedding, which is in one of the Dresden short stories. And she says that truthfully, Mab ordered them to not attack the Red Court and Mab has been acting weird. So that was a lot. Hopefully you followed all of that. But the Fae are back in in force and are a big part of the plot line. And I'm not sure where I rank the different orders of the, the different kind of denominations of beasts and, and villains and and orders that are going on in the book but honestly the fae are maybe not quite my favorite i, I don't know what, what do you think ben like in terms of fae or vampires or denarians how do the fae stack up yeah fae bottom tier for me mainly because there's so many different factions of them and they all seem kind of the same like, I, I feel like at least by now I have a very definite view of vampires and like what I can expect and stuff. But like, Faye just seem very confusing. Harry has different relationships with all of them. Some Faye, it seems like he likes and really respects and others he doesn't. And not really clear why on all, why he likes and respects some and dislikes others. And I feel like that started all the way back at his godmother. It's just this very confusing relationship, you know, so I'm with you on that. Yeah, they they are a little repetitive. Maybe some of the characters in the summer and winter and everything might be 
a little a little detail heavy. Josh, do you have an H for us? I have an H, and I I'm gonna give myself a pat on the back. At the start of Stormfront, Harry is 25. Whoa, this is so weird. You know, like those times where you talked about like, oh, do you have a voice in your head, and you find out other people like don't have like a voice that talks to them in their head or whatever. That's kind of one of those times for me. You have a voice <laughs> in your head, man. <laughs> no. <laughs> have you touched? Have you touched a burnished? coin recently <laughs> no i mean like my like the way i think is like a stream of consciousness type thing i feel like that's the way most people think but then you find out that some people don't think like that and they think more in like images and stuff i don't know yeah where you just find you figure out that something that i've been reading this series with a very clear picture of harry in my mind is like this beaten down middle-aged wizarding man and to find out that like that was a completely inaccurate picture is kind of weird and I don't know if that, what that speaks to with, uh, with the writing of this book, you know, like if I had an inaccurate picture in my head this whole time, I think this is just you watching the show beforehand. Yeah. I mean, that's true, but like clearly he could have thrown an age in there sometime in the last eight books. Yeah. <laughs> so how old is he? <laughs> ben, I'm, I'm glad you've had a, an awakening here. It sounds like there are some <laughs> demons you need to sort out, but <laughs> Josh, tell us how old he is now. Do you do you have does your timeline tell us how old yeah, he is? I got the series chronology. We'll post this in our on our Discord. I'll post this uh chronology. Okay, well, how old is he right now? Is he at least in his thirties by this point? So this is six years after so this is he would be thirty one. Okay. okay. Respectable age, thirty one. And he is uh twelve or thirteen years older than Molly. Molly's seventeen. Okay. So now that we know how old Harry is, we can continue learning about what happens in the book. <laughs> and I'm going to kind of like jump through a few events here uh, to, to get us towards some of the more important stuff. So we go back to SplatterCon. We learn that the director, his name is Crane, must be supernatural because Mouse reacts to him. And he's also got a supernatural henchman. Harry's working on this magical net over the hotel to track the Phobophages. And he's able to do so. At the same, he also has this conversation with Murphy, this DTR thing that Ben kind of already talked about. So the spell tracks the four phobophages, and Harry tries to turn them back towards the summoner, but one of them escapes and kills someone. And Harry tries, and Harry's able to take it down using Hellfire, using uh, you know the Denarian Lashiel's Hellfire, but it feels really too good for him, and he has more doubts because he feels like maybe he could have saved the girl. If he was more focused on her than stopping the phobophage. So these are some of the inner demons that Harry is working through in this book as well. And then after this happens, Harry gets knocked out with the tire iron and he is captured by Crane and his henchman. I think his henchman's name is Glau. And in one of the darkest moments of the book, Mouse is hit by a van and his fate is unknown. So I kind of sped through a few things there. But thoughts on the action as we get into into it more. Yeah, I mean, it kind of came out of nowhere. Like this whole vampire thing, kind of unclear why this is happening. I don't know. It didn't do much to progress the plot of the book, I don't think. So you're talking about the fact that Crane is actually Madrigal Wraith, who is Thomas's cousin. Yeah, yeah. And he's just trying to sell Harry to the highest bidder, apparently. Right. So a lot of these things, stuff like this, I think you just kind of have to like go into them assuming that they'll be important in future books. 
a lot of the things that are half introduced are really like setups that are baked into future installments. Okay, that's fair. I can I can get behind that. And it was interesting that Harry was it, he leaned more into the lachial part of himself when he was able to like dislocate all the bones in his hand to slip his handcuffs. That was kind of interesting that she was able to grant him that type of mental fortitude. Right. So he couldn't do magic because of the magic handcuffs, but he is able to use Lashiel to, yeah, given the mental stamina, I guess, to dislocate the bones in his hand, get out of the handcuffs. They escape. Mouse is fine. Thank goodness. And he takes out Glau, who is this half gin dude. And this guy gets quite a beating because he gets shot. And then by Thomas, he gets shot by Thomas, who comes in and saves them. And then Mouse comes in and mauls him. And then if that isn't enough, the Scarecrow appears and kills him. The Scarecrow is the escaped Phobophage. And Harry and Thomas run because these Phobophages are pretty hard to take down when they're on the loose. The Scarecrow appears to be like super OP at this point. It's kind of like one of those times where the monster grabs the person from the dark and you just see blood splattering. And you're like, whoa, what the heck just happened? So at this point, you're like, well... We got to get the heck out of here. Steven, as a lover of horror films, what would you think of this monster? Is this some? Is this a horror monster that you would be afraid of? Well, that's tough because Scarecrow is something that I can already picture because I've seen Batman Begins and Scarecrow's in that. He's, he's a little freaky, but I would not call that a horror film by any stretch. When I say horror film, I'm talking something really terrifying like The Ring. The Ring is, is not scary. Ultimate, I knew you were going to say that. The ultimate in terms of horror films. <laughs> when you're young and impressionable it is (laughs) and when i say young i mean like 19 years old (laughs) almost the age of harry dresden at the start of the series (laughs) i would not do well as a wizard in chicago (laughs) so they track the summoner harry's still tracking the summoner using this spell and it takes them to the carpenters so this is obviously bad but the carpenters are okay except for one of the kids who's unconscious they all run off to Father Fort Hills, which is the bastion of protection in the magical community. And Harry sees some phobophage trauma in a way that leads him to believe that, dun dun dun, the summoner is Molly, or Molly is connected to it in some way. We learn that Charity was once into magic and part of a bad crowd. And back in the day, Michael rescued her from that crowd and a literal dragon which is a fun detail and makes you realize that Michael is even more amazing than you previously thought, which is hard to track. And we guess then that Molly has been making her friends feed on fear rather than feel their addictions. Cause Molly is part of kind of a bad crowd and Molly's, you know, she's not a bad kid, right? We, 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 we think the best of her still, but it's not looking great because she's missing and she's the summoner. And based off what we know about kids that summon black magic, this looks really bad. And so this is where we really get to the climax of the book. So Ben, did you see Molly as being the summoner? You know, yeah, it was pretty obvious where it, where it was going. Um, the fact that she had something to do with it. Maybe because of the way it was set up at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, the way that was set up with the, with the kid and the way that everything seemed to be happening around her. Yeah. There were too many coincidences and it was like, come on, you have this, you know, Harry's sidekick that magically comes in at the beginning, you know that they're going to have like an outsized role throughout the book. So now we gear up for the climax and we assemble the war party. We've seen this before. 
This time, the war party, and in fact, we've done the same thing to assemble to go into a another realm of the Fae. This time, we're going into Arctic's Tor, which is the seat of the Winter Court. This is where Molly is being held captive, and Harry and Charity and Thomas and Murphy and Mouse and Lily and Fix are all going to go in, except it's empty, and it stinks of brimstone, which makes us think there's been some kind of hellfire attack, something related to the, to the Denarians, perhaps. And before they go too far, a bunch of fetches attack, which are shapeshifter demon things of the Fae. And they find Molly, they find the Scarecrow. Hel- Harry is able to use firepower from Lily, the Summer Lady, who kind of sneaks her way in to affecting things. And the day is saved. The ice everywhere melts, revealing uh, a tortured Lloyd Slate, who's the winter knight, and Harry's godmother, Leah, who's crazed. And they warn Harry that winter is coming, right? To take a line from Game of Thrones. And then as, as they're leaving, Harry thinks he sees Mab wink at him. So this is very strange and ominous, and we're not really sure what to make of it in this book, in fact. But this is pretty much the climax. So what do you guys think of this climax? It was interesting because Harry didn't like use strong magic. He actually uses smarts in this scene where he realizes that the phobophages are only like able to have strength if you are actively afraid of them. And so he's able to like not be afraid of them all of a sudden and just totally take him out. So that was cool to actually see Harry like piece something together and and not just blast somebody away with his with his blasting rod anyway he's able to be smart about it and you also have it was interesting to see oh what's the mother's name charity yeah it was interesting to see her because even though she didn't really do much for the fight it was still like she was able to act as a as any mother would and just be like totally be a mother in that moment so that was fun to see this is her molly weasley moment Taking on Bellatrix's charge. <laughs> yeah, Bellatrix. It was cool to picture her helping helping Michael train with the sword, too. You find out that they're like sparring partners. So that's fun to imagine. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we've talked about Charity before. She's a really well-defined character. Not much of a sidekick. She's a character in her own right. Yeah. The Carpenter family just gets cooler and cooler as the series goes on. They're awesome. So that's pretty much a wrap for the book. I mean, I'll type a few loose threads, loose threads here, and then we'll go into our worst of the best and, and call this episode a wrap. So they, I mean, they do fight their way back to Chicago, but things are pretty much wrapped up by now. They learn that summer can help out now that winter has pulled back. And I mean, help out with the war against the Red Court, which is great. Um, there's still all this, I guess the book isn't completely wrapped up because there's still this issue with Molly because Molly's in trouble. She's been using dark magic. Harry's able to soul gaze with her, confirm she's not corrupted, and they decide to go to the White Council and basically plea for mercy, for clemency. Merlin is there. He says execute because Merlin is pretty bloodthirsty, turns out. The gatekeeper asks for more time, and luckily Ebenezer and allies arrive, and they're able to turn the vote into Molly's favor because Ebenezer and co. had been just saved by one Michael Carpenter on his mission. And so they're able to come back and help his daughter. So that's a nice moment. I thought that really tied things up from uh, beginning to end. So Molly avoids execution, but has the doom of Damocles placed upon her, which is a nice name for saying, if you do it again, you're dead. And so is Harry because Harry is her, is her mentor at this point. So Harry will be training an apprentice 
going forward. And then there's a nice moment with Michael where Michael says he knew about the coin, but offers to help Harry out. So, I mean, we, we wouldn't expect anything less than Michael, right? Like Michael's not going to just smite off Harry's head. Of course, he's going to try to see the best in him first. And then at the very end, there is a scene that I know Ben has some thoughts about where Molly tries to come on to Harry. Harry tells her it's not going to happen. She moves back home as part of her apprenticeship. Murphy gets demoted. And then Ebenezer and Harry kind of discuss the emergence of the Black Council, which they suspect has been pulling the strings from book one. So they even connect like Victor Sells from book one to this Black Council. And they finally give a name to what's going on in the scenes. So final thoughts from you guys, then we'll go into worst the best. Yeah, so a few thoughts. Michael's mission was like more heavily connected in the fact that some the summer lady kind of manipulated that part of it too. There was there was a lot going on there that I had a hard time following. And this is kind of one of my big complaints with Jim Butcher is like he ends up having to like explain everything at the very end really fast. And you're like, I, I'm not sure I understood half of that. I'm just gonna trust that it made sense. So that was annoying. I thought I felt like it was cool that Michael did kind of come and save the day and that he would always end up being in the right place at the right time for his family. And then, yeah, my worst of the best big time was when like Molly as a character is awesome. But the the fact that Harry knew that Molly might have had, yeah, that Molly might have had feelings for him and then just waited for her to like come out of the shower and take off her clothes and then decide to tell her that it wasn't after ogling her, then tell her that it wasn't going to happen. That was really sleazy. I didn't like it. Made me feel very uncomfortable. It might've been the fact that like I was a teacher and taught 17 year old girls. And the fact that like, I would have gladly sent myself to prison had I allowed anything like that to happen with any of my students. It was weird. I didn't like it. Harry should be in prison after that game over i did not like that scene at all hot take lock him up lock him up big worst of the again worst of the best because molly up until that point great character i liked it and the the fact that there was like a little bit of like oh i'm gonna kind of flirt with harry because he's like the big strong dude who's friends with my dad that was a little bit uncomfortable but still you could get away with it but the moment that that scene happened i was like it was bad bad news yeah i I haven't thought about this enough to really have much of a response other than based off what you're saying. Yeah, it's clearly bad and I don't like it either. And the thing is, I actually set the next book down because there was a weird scene with Molly again at the beginning. And I was like, ah, I can't deal with this right now. I know it cooled down a little bit. So I, I actually ended up putting the next book down for, for a while. So I'm having to take a little Dresden break because of this whole Molly nonsense. Yeah, my question is, like, why couldn't they have just made Molly 18 during this? And, like, it would have just been a little bit, like, you would have kind of gotten around the super grossness of this. Yeah, totally unnecessary. It seems like an easy fix. This is weird to me. Too weird. Yeah, I don't have much of a defense at all. I guess uh, we just mark this one down as a a shake of our heads on the the book. But, uh, yeah, let let us know what you think. It's... Because you guys were talking about the big outcry from the fans about Murphy's pants scene. That was like a little bit weird to me and a little bit uncomfortable. But it was like not even in the same ballpark as this scene for me. So is there not like some type of comments that a lot of people make about this scene compared to the Murphy scene? I was reading through a Reddit thread on like male gaze in the series in general. 
And there were some good comments, but I don't remember enough to really, I'm sorry, I should have prepared more, um, more, more thoughts it. here. Maybe, maybe I'll prepare some more thoughts because I'm sure that there's going to be some Molly in the next book as well. So I'll, I'll look into it a little bit. Yeah, Molly is not going to go away. Yeah, he has an apprentice now. So that's cool. I do like that. I do like that. I like the fact that Molly is a sidekick now. I think that that's a great dynamic. I don't like how it started, though. So I guess I'll say my worst to the best is I really like the fact that we now have a name for the Black Council. There's a lot of questions being thrown around. But kind of like what you were saying, Ben, maybe too many and too many unanswered because now it's like we're starting to have to catalog all the unanswered things that we need answered. And it's not like they're going to be answered in the next book. Like some of them will, some won't. There'll be more things happening. So it is maybe a little hard to keep track of, especially like you are listening to the audiobooks. I imagine that's a little bit trickier as well. I don't remember having a hard time reading, but maybe in the age of audiobooks, that's difficult. Anyway, so I love the fact that we're really expanding the plot and things are being connected. But at the same time, it's a little tricky, especially when the Fae is so convoluted. Yeah, I just remember always being super engaged in Dresden and, and like... You know, it was in a period of my life where I could just read a lot. And I just remember reading all the books, just burning through them and, and loving them and not really caring about unanswered questions because the plots of the individual books were page turners. Yeah, I think I burned through the first 15 pretty quickly. Yeah. So that's a wrap for book eight, Proven Guilty. Catch us next time in the ninth installment of the Dresden Files. Thanks for listening. If you like what we're doing, check us out on our website, on social media. And hop on Discord and let us let us know what you think of some of these hot button topics that we have talked about. Because I don't know if we had really a strong enough opinion or if we fully dialogued what we probably really do think on, on some of these issues. Anyway, uh, Dresden Files is still a fun series and we enjoy reading through them. And thank you, Ben and Josh, for being on. Catch you guys next time. Thanks, Stephen. <laughs>